You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Useless information. Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. And here we are. We finally arrived at Lucky Podcast number 13, which was released on April 27th of 2008. And this episode does include a number of firsts. Most importantly, the main story about Henrietta Swan Levitt was the first one that I ever penned specifically for this podcast. Didn't come from my books, didn't come from my website. It was written specifically for this episode. I also introduced two new segments to the podcast, both of which I'm still doing today. And I think this episode is where the whole format of my podcast finally gels together. The first new edition was the Retro Sponsor, in which I play a commercial from old-time radio. Now, for some forgotten reason, the first one I ever played was for Camel Cigarettes. And looking back, I find that choice a bit odd. And that's because not only have I never smoked a cigarette, but in all the years since I have purposely avoided including ads for cigarettes, alcohol, and the like, not just the retro ads, but ads that the network wants to put in also. When they ask me about including things like for CBD and stuff, I just say no. I called the second new segment News of the Weird Past, and those are just the shorter tidbits that I've collected over the years. Now, these early ones were quite short, which is mostly a reflection of the difficulty in doing research online back then. But once newspaper archives became more readily available, I'd expand this section out. Now, today, I include these in what I call a retrocast. A little update is that the question of the day asked in this episode is about John Cleve Sims, now, I must have totally forgotten that I'd asked that question since 10 years later, I recorded an entire episode on him. If you're curious, that's podcast number 112, and it was titled A Journey to the Center of the Earth. One thing I wanted to mention is that this is the first time I've listened to this episode since it was first recorded, and I immediately noticed a big improvement in the sound quality over the previous recordings. My hunch is that this is the point where I finally upgraded my microphone and I still have it in a box in my basement. The system was called the Behringer Podcast Studio, and the microphone plugged into a tiny mixing board, which is then connected to my computer via a USB cable. And I have to admit, I could never get this thing to work correctly. I don't think it really had anything to do with Behringer. I think it had more to do with the interaction between the two systems. Every single time that I sat down to record an episode, which was basically once a month, 
it would take me at least an hour to figure out why the computer wasn't connecting to the microphone. I'd turn it on and off. I'd try resetting the drivers. Nothing seemed to work. Then all of a sudden, out of the blue, boom, for no reason at all, it would just start working. But I do think I was starting to sound more like myself with this new setup, although, as you're about to hear, I had still not invested in a pop filter. Unfortunately, you're going to hear annoying pops throughout the entire recording. One thing that I will add is that I did use that Behringer setup for a number of years. And while the sound quality isn't that great by today's standards, it really was considered very good back then. And just to prove my point, I stumbled across this email that I received from a listener from back when I was using that Behringer system. Uh, And let me read it to you. Quote, I'll be starting a podcast myself later this year researching microphones right now. Yours sounds excellent. I wonder if you could tell me what you use. Also, if you have an editing software recommendation. I downloaded Audacity, but have only just started playing with it. Believe it or not, I'm still using Audacity to this day. I've tried other pieces of software, but that works for me. Anyway, enough of me blabbing on. Let's roll the tape. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is one on Henrietta Swan Levitt, a woman that you've probably never heard of, but her work as a human computer changed astronomy forever. I've also added a couple of new features to today's podcast, which we'll get to in a little bit. But first, let's start with our question of the day. Our question of the day has to do with a guy who was a hero in the War of 1812 here in the United States. It was Captain John Cleve Sims, and he approached Congress with a very, very interesting proposal. And my question for you today is, what was that proposal that he took to Congress? And you have four choices, since you probably have no clue. So what did Sims approach Congress with? Was it one, he wanted Congress to fund the first airship ever to go to the moon? Or two, did he want the U.S. to switch to a new measurement system with his name on it, his creation, called the symmetric system, the symmetric system? Or was it proposal number three, where Sims actually wanted Congress to fund an exploration of the North Pole. He believed that you could actually enter in through a hole at the North Pole and go to the interior of the Earth where it would be warm and tropical. Or was his proposal number four, that he was going to slice off an end of Manhattan Island, spin it around 180 degrees, and reattach it to the main island because it was sinking from all the weight of construction in New York City. Again, the question was, what did Sims approach Congress about doing? Did he, one, want Congress to fund the building of an airship that allow people to travel to the moon for the first time? Was it, two, did he want the U.S. to switch to his new measurement system called the symmetric system? Three, did he want us to fund an exploration to the North Pole that would allow him and his team to enter in the holes of the pole and explore the inside of the Earth? Or four, did he want to slice off the end of Manhattan Island, spin it around 180 degrees, and then reattach it with powerful ships to the island to prevent it from sinking? I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story on Henrietta Swan Levitt, a woman who has been forgotten to history but made a very, very important contribution in the early 1900s. Now, if you had been alive from about the mid-17th century to the middle part of the, of the 20th century, the mid-1900s, and someone talked to you about a computer, you wouldn't think of a mechanical device that did calculations. You would have thought of an actual person. And Henrietta Swan Levitt was one of these people. She was hired to actually be a human computer. 
So let's start with a little background. First of all, Henrietta Leavitt was born on July 4th, 1868, and she graduated from Radcliffe College in 1892, although it was called the Society for the Collegiate Instruction of Women at that time. But being a smart, educated woman at this time really was of no use because they were not accepted into the workforce. Most women were expected to stay home and basically raise the children. So what she decided to do was volunteer for a position at Harvard Observatory in 1895. She was about 25 years old at this time. And what she was paid to do was be a human computer, basically to use her brain to do very complex observations and mathematical calculations and just report the data back to her supervisors. Although it wasn't a lot of money, in 1902, seven years later, she was actually offered a real job, a regular job at the Harvard Observatory working under the famed astronomer Edward Pickering. Pickering assigned her a very, very tedious job. What she was to do was go through thousands and thousands and thousands of glass plates of the sky and compare them looking for what was known as a pulsating star as a variable star, something that would get brighter and dimmer, brighter and dimmer, something that would ebb and flow in predictable patterns. And she was assigned to look in the Magellanic Clouds, which are two neighborhood galaxies of the Milky Way. Now let me give you an idea how tedious this work really was. What she would do was take an image of the sky, which would be photographed onto a glass plate, and then take a second picture that was taken at another time, a different night, of the same area of the sky. One would be a positive and one would be a negative image of the sky, meaning that on one slide the stars would actually appear as bright spots, but on the other slide the stars would appear as dark spots. And what she would do is very carefully lay one slide over the other. Once she had the two plates lined up, she would then take a hand lens, an eye lens, and actually magnify the image to see each individual star on there. Now, if nothing was changing on the star between the two nights, then the star would just become blackened out. You wouldn't see anything. On the other hand, if the star was pulsating, in other words, getting brighter and dimmer, brighter and dimmer, you would actually see the dark spot of the negative slide with a halo around it for the positive slide. And that would indicate that the star was actually blinking and getting brighter and dimmer, brighter and dimmer over a period of time. And if she saw that, she would get more slides for different nights taken over you know, a period of a year or so and compare and try and get an idea of where the star was, what its period was, and just as much information as she could collect. It was basically collecting data about that particular point. As tedious as this work may seem, she actually worked on this for a period of many, many years, more than 10 years, day after day, night after night, spending endless hours looking at slide after slide after slide, picture after picture after picture, plate after plate after plate, cataloging all of these variable stars. Finally, in 1912, Edward Pickering published a paper at Harvard, uh, giving full credit to Levitt, detailing her observation of 1,777 of these variable stars in the Magellanic Clouds. Now, every one of these stars waxes and wanes like slow-motion beacons in the sky. Some took days, some took weeks, some took months to go through their cycle. Overall, there was nothing really shocking about this until you got to the very end of the paper, at which point she discusses the nature of 25 of these particular stars. In fact, a certain type called a Cepheid variable star. And what she noticed is that there was a relationship between the period of their brightness and how bright they actually were. To put this in plain English, what it means is the brighter the Cepheid variable star actually was, 
the longer its period was. In other words, brighter stars will blink more slowly. The brighter the star is, the slower it will blink. Now you're probably saying big deal, but you're not an astronomer. To an astronomer, this was a revolutionary idea because you have to realize at this time, no one had a way of measuring the distance to very, very far out stars. Yeah, they could measure some of the closer stars, but even that wasn't a very accurate science. And the ones that were way out there, no one really knew how far they were. Neither the brightness nor the size would be of any help to you. If you think about it, you can have a really large, bright star that's so far out that it appears very small and dim. But this is where Levitt's true genius came in. She realized that all the stars in the Magellanic Clouds must be approximately the same distance from the Earth. They must be about the same distance. If you can determine the distance to one of these Cepheid variable stars in the Magellanic Clouds, then you can use that as a key to figure out the distance to every other variable Cepheid star anywhere in the universe. So all you simply need to do is find a Cepheid variable somewhere out there in our great expanse of a universe and measure its pulse. See how long it takes to dim and brighten, dim and brighten. And once you get that, then you know how bright the star really is. Now brightness actually drops off exponentially. So if you know how bright it should be and it appears four times dimmer, then you know it's twice as far away from you. If it appears nine times dimmer, then it's three times farther from you, and so on. The real trick, though, was just how far away is, are any of these Cepheid variables, and that would actually take other scientists to figure out. And once this paper was published, it really didn't take long for other astronomers to hop on the bandwagon. They wanted to find out as soon as possible how far out is it to one of these Cepheid variables, because once you can find out the distance to one, then you've unlocked the key to the entire universe. And it didn't take long. Just shortly after her discovery, Elner Hersprung of the famed Hersprung-Russell diagram and another astronomer named Harlow Shapley, they both went to work on this problem and it was soon determined that the Magellanic Clouds were about 100,000 light years from us. To give you an idea how important this was, prior to uh, Henrietta Swan's discovery, astronomers could estimate probably about 100 light years out into space what the distance was to a particular star. But now with her discovery, they can go more than 10 million light years out into space and estimate the distance. Sadly, Levitt uh, became ill shortly after this discovery and died of cancer on December 12, 1921. Now, it has been reported in the literature that she actually was nominated for a Nobel Prize in 1925, but that's actually not true. It was suggested that she be awarded the Nobel Prize, but it turns out she was already deceased and therefore not eligible. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now, starting with this podcast, I thought I'd try something new, something I'm going to call my retro sponsor. Now, you've seen on Nickelodeon and TV Land where they have retro commercials. They play TV commercials from many, many, many years ago for products that don't even exist anymore. And then there are also people who have podcasts who are trying to earn some money off of them with sponsors. So I thought, why not combine the two and have a little bit of fun? So here is our first retro sponsor. What cigarette do you smoke, doctor? That question was asked a few years ago of 113,597 doctors. The brand name most was Camel. Recently, that question was again asked of tens of thousands of doctors across the country. Doctors in all branches of medicine. And again, the brand named most was Camel. Yes, according to these nationwide surveys, more doctors smoke Camels than any other cigarette. Friends, smoke the cigarette so many doctors enjoy. Change to Camel for 30 days and see how mild, how flavorful, how enjoyable a cigarette can be. Yes, change to Camels for 30 days and you'll stay with Camels from then on. How mild, how mild, how mild, how mild can a cigarette be? Make the Camel 30-day test and you'll see. Smoke Camels and see. I really had to play that one first because, boy, you know, more doctors smoke camels, so clearly I should also. And if I try for 30 days, I have a feeling I'll be smoking them for much, much longer than that. I'll be addicted. And now for the second new feature of our podcast, which I'm calling News of the Weird Past. These are little tidbits that I found in magazines, uh, newspapers, and so on as I've researched these stories going back, you know, more than 100 years or so. So I hope you enjoy it. Here are just a few. On March 3, 1923, a young lady in Asbury Park, New Jersey, was reported to have hiccuped steadily for 12 weeks consecutively without stopping. Then all of a sudden, immediately, she stopped. And get this one. On November 12, 1928, some burglars entered the house of a guy named William Fricky. Mrs. Fricky's police dog slept the whole time while they stole more than $1,000 worth of property. Yet, when the police actually came to respond to the calls of Mrs. Fricky, the police dogs, of course, rushed to the police and bit them severely. And here's just one more. Mr. and Mrs. James P. Young, they arrived in Virginia Beach, Virginia on August 8, 1938. It took them two and a half months to ride their bicycle, a tandem bicycle, from California to Virginia Beach. What did they do when they got there? They turned around and went back. I hope you enjoyed these little tidbits. And now the answer to our question of the day. I had asked you about the great Captain John Cleve Sims, who was a hero of the War of 1812. I told you that he approached Congress with a proposal to do something. He wanted money 
to fund this crazy idea that he had. And I gave you four choices. One was to build an airship to actually go and fly to the moon. The second was to have the U.S. switch to a new measurement system named after him. SIMS became the SIM metric system. The third was he wanted Congress to fund an expedition to the North Pole where he'd be able to enter through a hole in the pole and go interior to the Earth. And the fourth one was to actually slice off an end of Manhattan Island, spin it around with powerful ships, and reattach it back to the island. And I asked you which one's correct. Now the answer happens to be the third one. He wanted Congress to actually fund an expedition to the North Pole. He believed at that time, now you have to remember, nobody had ever been to the North or South Pole. He and many other people believed that the Earth was hollow inside. And if you sailed to the poles, you could actually enter inside the Earth, and it'd be nice, warm, and tropical there. And he actually got a number of congressmen to support him before the idea was actually thrown out. Uh, now you would think that would be the end of it, uh, because by 1908 and 1909, people had actually been to the North and South Pole. But believe it or not, one of our great leaders, and I say this very sarcastically, a guy named Adolf Hitler still believed it. And he actually funded uh, German people to go in search of this with their subs. Now, that's kind of questionable whether or not that really happened or not. But that's how the story goes. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on Henrietta Swan Leavitt and her important uh, contribution to the world of astronomy. I also hope that you liked my question of the day, my new retro sponsor, and the new News of the Weird Past. These are new features that I'm going to try and iron out and get a little better with uh, time. Now, if you'd like to read more true stories just like these, be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator, and the second book is Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. I'll, I'll stick with the shorter titles right now. And they're both written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available at your local bookseller, online retailers, and through, of course, your local library. Now, if for some reason you'd like to contact me, you can simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. You can also check out my website, which has a bunch of stories on it, and that is uselessinformation.org. That's uselessinformation.org. Now, it was mentioned to me by a, uh, a listener that I need to increase the listenership of this podcast. So I'd appreciate it if you would actually log into iTunes, which is a free download, and leave some positive comments and maybe someone will read them and maybe more people will start listening. And of course, the more people that listen, the more I'll crank these things out. So I thank you for listening and have a great day. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.